Welcome to Working Towards Our Purpose, a podcast that offers a different perspective on what a job can be. For everyone out there that's heard that voice in the back of their head asking for something more, it's time to listen to it. I'm your host, Gino, and join me as I interview people who have decided to work in their own purpose. Together, we will learn, become inspired, and hopefully find our own path towards working in our purpose. Joining me today on the podcast is Barb Nangle, who is the Boundaries Coach, founder of Higher Power Coaching. She's also the host of the podcast, Fragmented to Whole, Life Lessons from 12-Step Recovery. She's the community manager at Known Coworking, and she's also a speaker, writer, and connector. Barb, welcome. How are you doing today? Thank you so much, Gino. I'm doing well. Spring is actually here, so I'm really excited about that, and I'm excited to have this conversation with you because we've talked a lot but we've never had a lengthy conversation. Mm -hmm. Yes, we've known each other for, I think, a little over a year, but never like had a one-to-one sit-down like this. So I'm excited as well. (laughs) So can you start by telling me a little bit about yourself, what you do, and and that kind of thing? Sure. I I think it's important for me to give a little bit of background. So I just turned 60 a couple weeks ago, and right before I turned 52, I hit a codependent bottom. And if you don't know what that is, welcome to the club, because I didn't know what it was either. So codependency is, in its broadest terms, a person who's codependent is someone who really focuses on that which is outside themselves. So often we're looking to other people for validation or We're completely focused on what other people are thinking or doing and often like rescue, fix, and save people. And I had invited a homeless friend that I met through church to stay at my home during a snowstorm one time, which I now know is not normal behavior. And he did. And then he stayed another time and another time. And then within a few weeks, he was practically living with me. I felt trapped in my own home. He was an addict and an alcoholic, probably also a narcissist. And I was talking to my therapist about him one day and I stopped in mid-sentence and went, oh my God, do you think I need to go to Al-Anon? And she said, yes. And for those who don't know what Al-Anon is, it's a 12-step recovery program for the loved ones of alcoholics. And you may be thinking, why do the loved ones of alcoholics need a recovery program? And it's because the things that we do sort of naturally to either try to help alcoholics or drug addicts or other kinds of obsessive compulsive people either recover or stop or get into treatment are actually counterproductive. So we need to be able to figure out like what we're doing that is is exacerbating the problem. And so I went home from that therapy session and I don't know what I put into Google, but I was looking for Al-Anon and I came across this word codependent and I was shocked because I started therapy when I was 15. I didn't go continuously, but that's like almost 37 years of therapy. I read a gajillion self-help books. I'm a very introspective person. I have done all kinds of workshops and retreats, like you name it. And I had never heard this word. And I was like, wait, how is this possible? So I started in recovery for codependence and very quickly got a sense of relief, I think partly from finding out there's this concept that it describes me and partly from seeing like there's a recovery program, there's other people like me, it's possible to get past this pattern of behavior. And I remember saying to somebody pretty quickly, I think I need to be reparented. But I thought I made that term up. I didn't know that was a thing. And then really soon after that, I was visiting a friend 
in Cape Cod who had been in Alcoholics Anonymous for a long time. And she had always just raved about how fantastic it was. And so I told her I've been going to Codependence Anonymous and she was like, oh, let's see if we can find a meeting for Coda here and we'll go. And she couldn't, but she found a meeting for ACA, which is an abbreviation for Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families, sometimes called ACOA. And I don't identify as the child of an alcoholic. And I never really had heard the and dysfunctional families part of it. So I was like, I'll go for you. And I walk in and they say, we reparent ourselves. And I was like, what? And then they read the 14 traits of an adult child, which is affectionately called the laundry list. And I was hooked and I bought the literature. I came home to New Haven, Connecticut, started going to meetings for that too. and. I have been deeply and profoundly changed by the process of 12-step recovery. So the way I like to describe it is all those other self-help things that I did and all the therapy sort of scratched the surface of the iceberg for me, whereas recovery melted the iceberg. So I've been able to change deeply entrenched decades-long patterns of behavior, some of which I didn't even know were dysfunctional or that I had, even being a very um, introspective person. And so through a series of serendipitous events, I got laid off from Yale University and found my way into the world of entrepreneurship, startups, and innovation in New Haven and at Yale and started my own coaching and consulting business, as you mentioned, Higher Power Coaching and Consulting, and then started my podcast. And because recovery was so important and such a game changer for me. I felt the need to get the wisdom of recovery out into the world because I've been trying my whole life and I got into recovery and I'm like, there's this deep well of wisdom and tools and tricks and mindset shifts in recovery that needs to make its way out to the world. So I started my podcast and eventually I decided as a life coach to hone in on becoming a boundaries coach because one, you know, you need a niche as a life coach. Life coach is pretty generalized and there's so many different areas of life. Two, um, every client I worked with really needed help with boundaries. Three, boundaries as a codependent are really the antidote to codependence. And they were such an important part of my recovery. And because of my lived experience of not having them and then having them, I can articulate like the emotional experience of what it's like to not have them and have them and the journey for how to form them and eventually created a curriculum to really teach people and accelerate their boundary building process. Because I learned to build boundaries in this sort of meandering catches catch can way through recovery over probably like a two to three year period of time. And I have figured out like what were the specific things that I did and created a curriculum around that. And now I have coaching programs and I do speaking and all that sort of thing. And then the way that that Gino and I know each other is through known co-working where I'm a community manager. And that has to do with my, you know, finding my way into the world of entrepreneurship. And by nature, I am a connector. And so that's what I do there. I would say coaching and connecting people and carrying the message of recovery are three things that are just the essence of who I am. So that's my probably about as abbreviated version of the background that I could give you. 
Mm. Well, thank you for sharing all that. I did want to ask you a little bit more about like coaching and how you got into coaching. So you said you were a life coach first and then you kind of pivoted into a boundaries mm-hmm. coach. How mm-hmm. did you start out as a life coach? And to me, it seems like being a coach and I'm kind of even trying to become almost that in podcasting. Mm-hmm. And how do you get started in like coaching people, especially when you don't have any clients at first? Yeah. So this is a really interesting story. I have to give you a little bit more background too. So what got me into the world of entrepreneurship is when I got laid off from Yale, one of my colleagues had just gotten a grant called Innovation to Impact, which is funded by NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And it was to teach entrepreneurship to substance use researchers to get their ventures to market much more quickly. And I had actually given her some input when writing the grant and then The day before I got laid off, she and I had lunch and she said, you know, every time that I've gone somewhere as a grad student, I've hopped onto a project that's already running and I've never started something from the ground up. And I had. So she said, you know, I'd really like your input. Can I do this with the positions we've written into the grant? And I looked at it and I said, you know, if you can get people who can hit the ground running, absolutely. But if you have to train people up that don't know what they're doing, no. And I decided that I would volunteer four hours a week for her. And that is what got me into the world of entrepreneurship. And I volunteered at the Yale Entrepreneurial Bazaar to staff a table for that project. And I met Oni Obiocha, who is now the executive director of CT Next. But at the time, he was director of innovation at the Dwight Hall at Yale, which is the student-run center for social justice at Yale. And I was like, wait, why is, I mean, that's amazing that Dwight Hall has a director of innovation, but why does that happen? And I didn't know this, but he was also a mentor in residence at Sci City, which is the center for innovative thinking at Yale, which used to be called the Yale Entrepreneurial Institute. I started volunteering for him too. So this also got me into the world of entrepreneurship. And all this time, I was getting severance from Yale. I was looking for jobs at Yale. And after several months, my severance was going to run out. And I went to both Patricia and Oni and said, listen, I need to stop volunteering for both of you because I need to like put the hammer down on getting a job. And Oni said to me, Barb, tell me why you don't have your own coaching and consulting business, because that's what you do. Now, here's why he said that. Because in my journey, there was a job posted from Sci City, and it was something like the director of like networking, mentoring, and partnerships or something. And I was like, that is my job. So I literally started acting as if it was my job. I started doing the job and making connections and pulling together resources and all that sort of thing. And that's what he was talking about when he said, you know, because I was reporting to him every week. Well, actually, it was after that that I reported to him every week what I was doing to sort of build my business. And then I met with Margaret, who was one of the founders of Collab, which in New Haven is a boost program for entrepreneurs. And I was like, I don't know how to coach. And she said this. She said one of the most important things I learned, and it was, Barb, you don't get better at something by not doing it. You just start coaching. And I was like, okay, that seems patently obvious when you say that, but okay. (laughs) So I just continued to do networking. I didn't know what I was going to do for, you know, coaching and all that stuff. And one of the things I was doing was I was going to, it was called We at Yale, which stands for Women Entrepreneurs at Yale. And Jen, whose last name I don't remember, she's one of the professors in the entrepreneurship program at the Yale School of Management, 
challenged me within the next two weeks to build a website. And I was like, okay, I'm up for it. I built a website. And then I ended up going on a six week solo road trip and I did a blog and I posted it on my website and I shared it with people. And that's how I got my first client. It was somebody that I was in recovery with. And she said, I hear that you are a coach and I'd like to be coached by you. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. So she said to me, what do you charge? And I said, you know, I honestly don't know how to answer that because for me, this is a spiritual endeavor. So what I'm going to say to you is what does your conscience tell you that you should pay me? And she said, well, you're definitely worth more than this, but I'm going to give you $40 an hour. I was like, sold. And not long after she said to me, this is helping me so much. I'm going to increase it to $50 an hour. And then I had a young person in the community that I had coffee with pretty regularly And she was sort of picking my brain. And she finally said, you know, I'm realizing that I know you're a coach and I should pay you. And I can't, I'm really making a very low amount of money, but I can pay you a hundred dollars a month. And I feel like it's not only helping you and giving you what you deserve, you deserve more, but it's making me realize I deserve to put money towards my personal growth and my mental health and all that stuff. And then I started talking with people And one woman who had her own business that had nothing to do with coaching said, I think you should charge $85 an hour. And I was like, okay. So my next client, which now I don't remember, oh, that came from my podcast, which I was shocked. And I charged her $85 an hour. And then my next client, I was like, I need it to be $100 an hour. And then it was $150. And eventually I created coaching programs. I mostly have people sign up for like either a group program or my private coaching program is a 12-week program and that sort of thing. So that's how I got started coaching. Now, in terms of becoming a boundaries coach, what I was doing in the beginning was I thought because my my people were people in recovery and people in entrepreneurship that I wanted to coach people who were entrepreneurs in recovery. And then I realized entrepreneurs often want like a business coach. That's not what I am. And sometimes they don't want people to know they're in recovery So I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I honed in on boundaries and it started because I wanted to do a webinar and I knew like I can do a webinar on boundaries like easily. And just a little tiny bit of backstory is like, I learned how to form boundaries through recovery. And after I had a pretty solid handle on how to have healthy boundaries and how to set them and what to do when people push back, I started reading about boundaries and I got a like a retroactive understanding of, oh, this is what I did. This was the concept and this is the skill and all that kind of stuff. But all the books I was reading were a bunch of words. And I, I guess I'm a pretty visual person. So I started like drawing like depiction of what that would look like visually with a boundary. And th- those drawings turned into handouts, which eventually turned into a workbook, which turned into the backbone of my boundaries coaching program. And then around that, I built a curriculum, which is composed of articles that I've written and podcasts that I have. So, you know, one of the things that those of us who are content creators talk about is the way to maximize your effort and time is to repurpose your content. So I repurposed some of my podcast episodes into articles that meant I fleshed them out in much more detail. And then I also repurposed 
the podcast as part of my curriculum. And then I take some of the, the worksheets and the concepts from the curriculum and turn them into podcasts. And there's like this circular thing going on there. Hmm. So that's the story of how I became a boundaries coach. Hmm. I think it's very interesting because you are a solopreneur for the most part, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how do you manage, because it seems like you're always creating content, like you said, um, whether it's the podcast or Instagram or, you know, I found out that you have a community and like, how do you manage all of it and how do you devote enough time to put to each thing? Yeah. So I ask for help and I hire people to help me. So um, before having healthy boundaries, I was <laughs> incapable of asking for help. And now I'm like, oh my God, help is awesome. So I have a virtual assistant. I create the vast majority of my social media posts, though I have at times hired professionals to create a bank of things for me. And I still use some of those things and I use some of those as inspiration. But my virtual assistant has been with me for a long time. The, the bulk of what she does is everything to do with my podcast that has to do with social media. So I create like the, the podcast cover and the cover for Headliner, which is the audiogram that you can post online. And then she takes the quotes that my podcast manager pulls out from each episode, creates a graphic for that. And then she sets all that stuff up in later.com. That's the scheduling program that I use for my social media. And then she also takes my newsletter that I create and send out via MailChimp and turns it into a blog post on my website and then posts it on Facebook and LinkedIn for me. And now what she's doing right now, another thing I just had her do is she's taking articles that I wrote and posted on medium.com and we're turning them into blog posts on my website, which I've wanted to do forever. And it's just like, the time is just right for that. I've had her do so many other things for me. I work with Chantel Garcia of Innovative Consulting and Services, who I met through Known Coworking. She is my CFO for hire. I think of her as my financial thought partner. So her firm takes care of my bookkeeping and accounting. I work with Rick Callahan of Creative, which is a branding and marketing agency. Also, I didn't actually meet him from Known. I met him because he was the entrepreneur in residence at the library but I really got to know him through Known because I invited him when we started Known. I was like, that guy needs to come here and needs to check this place out. And then I really got to know him. And in fact, I saw him do a workshop with somebody to help them take the 50 million things they were doing and figure out how do I pull that into a brand? And I was like, that's the guy that I need to work with. I have hired a variety of coaches for other things I also am very good at time management. I, I block my time and I work using the Pomodoro technique where you work in a 25-minute chunk of time and then you take a break for five minutes. And as a recovering multitasker and someone who has attention issues, I don't have attention deficit disorder, but I've learned how to be super focused in those 25 minute chunks of time. And it's like really freeing for me. And so I'm super productive. So it's about like delegating. I try to do the things that are within my zone of genius and delegate, especially repetitive tasks to other people. And then I think just like therapists need therapists, 
coaches need coaches and you know i need coaches because they know things i don't but i also need accountability i'm really good at self accountability but there's nothing like having you know someone that you meet with weekly and having tasks and and wanting to make sure that you get them done so i have been in a variety of coaching programs right now i'm in something called selling with soul with tiffany carter which is really really helpful in changing things for me because she works with people like me who are very mission oriented and like, I'm never going to violate my values in my business. I don't want to push something on someone that they don't want. I want people to understand what their issues are and that I can help them. Because if you had told me years ago, your issue is boundaries, I wouldn't have known what the fuck you were talking about. You know, so she's helping me speak in language that my ideal clients can hear. And it's my job to let people know there's a solution to your issue. The pain that you're going through, the anxiety, the the fear, the guilt, the shame, like all of that can be cleaned up with boundaries. And here's the thing about boundaries, Gino. They permeate every single area of your life. So it kind of doesn't matter what your issue is. I can probably help you as a boundaries coach. So uh, I did see on your website, I was reading through some of your bio and stuff, and it says that you empower people to live their lives on purpose. And you've already spoken a bit about that. Um, but can you go into that a little bit more and, and talk about why you think it is important to live in your purpose and not to just, yeah. you know, kind of yeah. chug along Absolutely. with the day? Yeah. So I'm glad you asked that. So I did not know that I wasn't living on purpose before I got into recovery. So that's really interesting. And the reason I say that boundaries help you live on purpose is that through the process of forming boundaries, which by the way, is an experimental process, because if you are someone with poor boundaries, chances are you don't really know what you like and want and need to prefer because you've been so focused on what other people want and like and need to prefer, and especially what other people think of you, that you don't really know what your preferences are. So the process of setting boundaries is like, wait, do I actually like this or do I actually want to do that? And so you have to experiment and you start to figure out, um, okay, this is okay with me and that is not okay with me. And the way that I coach my clients, I take them through a process to help them figure out their top five values. And the reasons that is important is because the way to know when and where to set your boundaries is by what's important to you. In other words, what you value. So when they keep those as guideposts in their mind, they're figuring out, oh, that's right, you know, family is important to me or health is important to me or dignity is important to me. And what are the boundaries I need to put in place to uphold my value of family and health and dignity, for example? And when you start living in alignment with your values, it brings you to integrity. And integrity is another word for wholeness. So Back to the name of my podcast, Fragmented to Whole, Life Lessons from 12-Step Recovery. It's named that because I had this notion before recovery that I was a bunch of fragmented pieces floating around in space. And the process of recovery, and especially the process of forming healthy boundaries, helped me integrate those fragments into one coherent whole. So now I can be rocked by things that happen to me, but I can't be shattered by them the way that I used to because I am whole. 
And there were many things I was doing before recovery that contributed to my fragmentation. So one is I had a bunch of facades up and I faked the funk about who I said yes to things I didn't want to. Some of it was that I was dishonest. And, you know, I lied about cigarettes and drugs and alcohol and all kinds of things like that. But I mostly lied in the people pleasing department and said that I was happy to do things that I wasn't. And then I got resentful of people and I pitched about them behind their back. And that's not an integrity. So when you are doing things that are not in alignment with your values, you're chipping away at your integrity. And it's a lot easier to hold on to your boundaries when you know this is what I value. And so a lot of people in our society nowadays talk about living a purpose-driven life. And so many people are like, what's my purpose? What's my purpose? I don't know what my purpose is. How do I find my purpose? I'll tell you what your purpose is. Your purpose is to live in alignment with your values because your particular constellation of values is never going to be the same as someone else's. Even if someone else had the same top five values as you, it doesn't mean that they think of them the same way. So I'll give you an example. If someone says family is really important to me, it's a high value for me, one person to them, what that might mean is when I say family is important to me, it means I want to be home having dinner with my family every night of the week and I want to have leisure time on the weekends with my family. So I'm never going to take a job where I have to work 50, 60, 70 hours a week, take calls and emails on weekends, etc. Another person might say family is really important to me and I want to give my family the things I never had as a child. So I want to earn a really hefty living. And so I'm going to take a job where I'm going to work 50, 60, 70 hours a week. And I'm going to take you know calls and messages on weekends. However, we're going to live in a really nice home and we're going to go on amazing vacations and we're going to have a swimming pool. So even if those two people have family as the same, you know, they both say family is their value it's not going to look the same. So your particular constellation of values are going to be unique to you and you living in alignment with those values. That's your purpose. Just be whole, you know, have integrity. And so the way that you are going to thrive in your life is if you're on your purpose, on in alignment with your values. And so to me, Learning how to have healthy boundaries is about really taking control of your life so you can thrive. Yeah, I really like the way that you described that. It makes a lot of sense to me personally. And even kind of makes me think about like how when people work with coaches, like some people you'll work well with and then some people won't work well because of the language that you speak and the values that you hold and stuff like that because everybody is different. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I like the way that you um, articulated that. So I wanted to ask a boundary specific question. So I know a lot of times I am, and I'm sure with a lot of people are the same, that they're their own worst critic and hardest on themselves. Does that have to do with setting boundaries? Like, do you set boundaries with yourself? Absolutely. Hands down, the most important boundaries that I set are with myself. Hmm. So many of those boundaries fall under the category of what I call boundaries of self-containment. So these are things that we need to either contain or stop doing. And let me tell you something, Gino, I would say that when I really got good at the boundaries of self-containment, that cleaned up like 85% of the drama in my life. Mm. And it meant that I stopped doing things that were either creating chaos or dysfunction around me. And I stopped doing things that exacerbated the chaos going on around me. 
And what I've realized over time, there are actually two different kinds of boundaries of self-containment. So the first kind of boundary of self-containment is something that I need to contain or stop doing that really only affects me. It doesn't affect other people. And so negative self-talk is one of them. So I need to contain that. I need to stop doing the negative self-talk. So the first step in that is to notice that you're doing it and then to stop, which isn't entirely easy. I know that because I've been through this process. And in fact, when I was in my late 20s, I went through a process where I did a lot of work to clean up the negative self-talk and it really made a huge difference in my life. But when I got into recovery, I realized there was so much more. Many of the negative self-talk things were actually below the level of language. It was beliefs that were so deeply entrenched that I didn't even know that I believed them. And then when I was able to finally put words on them, then I could negate them. So I'll give you an example. I often had this feeling in my life that I needed to sort of like shrink down and get smaller and back off. And when I finally realized the words that go with that are, I'm too much, I was able to turn that around and create my own affirmation, which was, I'm just the right amount of everything. And that really helped me that every time I started to have this, this impulse to shrink, I would say, I'm just the right amount of everything. But putting a boundary of self-containment around the self-talk is really important because the way I think of it is you are poisoning the, the reservoir of your mind and you've been doing it for decades. And I did a calculation one time that if you had 10 negative thoughts a day, which is very low number for most people. And I can't remember what the time period was, but it was like 20,000 thoughts over some period of time. And it's like you're dropping poison into the reservoir of your mind every single day. And that if you stop it, that will purify the reservoir of your mind, but it'll take a while. But if you put medicine in, it will purify it much more quickly. And the medicine is affirmations. And what's interesting is if you beat yourself up for 20 years with poison 10 times a day, it's not going to take you anywhere near that amount of time with the medicine to turn it around. I mean, we're talking like less than a year if you're consistent about it. And the other thing, like one really important notion that I learned in recovery that really helped me is that when you learn something about yourself or you observe something about yourself that's negative, think of it as info, not ammo. In other words, it's information for you to learn, integrate, and grow from. It is not ammunition for you to beat yourself up. And even though I've always been the eternal optimist, a very positive, motivational person, I realized in recovery, it was almost like I was always scanning the horizon for reasons to beat the crap out of myself. So I was like, oh, this is info, not ammo. So that info, not ammo combined with stopping the negative self-talk, really, really powerful. So that's one example of a boundary of self-containment that only affects you. But then there are boundaries of self-containment that affect you and other people. And I'm going to tell you one of my worst ones, which I was shocked to learn this, which was that I gossiped. So I did not know that me bitching about my boss of 19 years behind her back was gossip, which is hilarious because that's sort of the definition of gossip. But, you know, I mentioned I'm in ACA and what happened for me was I grew up in a dysfunctional family where we engaged in indirect communication. So we didn't talk to the person we had difficulty with. We talked to everybody around them. This was a communication pattern laid down before I was born. I couldn't help but grow up in this family and 
learned that. And what that resulted in was me gossiping. So when I realized I gossiped, I had to stop that. And what happened at work when I stopped gossiping about that boss behind her back was my resentment went down by like 80, you know, 90, 95%. And I was like, whoa. So it's not that she wasn't doing anything, but I was magnifying the difficulty so much. And what happened was because I was there for so long and I had seniority over so many people that I essentially created a culture of expectation that we talk about problems, we don't address them. We talk about her, we don't go to her and say, hey, this isn't really working for us. We need to talk as a team about what we can do to adjust. No, we didn't do that. And so when I stopped my part, it had a dramatic effect on the team and the culture of the organization. So as you can see, when I institute that boundary of self-containment, it doesn't just affect me, it affects all the people around me. So I would say, you know, and I, I think that, you know, those were hands down the most important boundaries that I learned to institute was boundaries of self-containment. What most people think about when they think about boundaries, they think about boundaries of self-protection, which are the things we need to protect ourselves from. And I'm here to tell you people, if you have poor boundaries, you're probably pretty clear people are walking all over me. But what you probably are unaware of is you are probably walking all over other people through like things like gossiping and giving unsolicited advice and that sort of thing. Thank you for explaining that. I definitely resonated with some of the stuff that you were talking about as far as doing things that you don't even realize that you're doing that are detrimental to yourself and making things worse than they than they really are. Can you also talk to the recovery programs that you were in a little bit more? Because I think, at least for myself, if I think of recovery, I more so think of like Alcoholics Anonymous mm-hmm. um, or, you know, problems with drugs. But there are programs for the things that we're talking about, right? right? And, and yeah. how do you go about finding or being aware of, yeah. of these yeah. sorts of groups? So I want to start with Alcoholics Anonymous, which was the first 12-step recovery program founded in 1939. And then all of the other groups have sort of come from that. Um, They all use the same 12 steps, but the way they go about them is different. So Codependence Anonymous, which is the, the group that I started in, is really for people who, like me, are codependent and super focused on other people. Often they're people who are loved ones of of alcoholics and other kinds of addicts, whether it's a drug addict, a gambling addict, a food addict, a sex and love addict, a technology addict, you know, whatever that is. So what we talk about in recovery is there are actually physical addictions and process addiction. So a process addiction would be like sex and love addicts anonymous or codependence where we're, it's almost like we're addicted to people. And then The ACA program that I am in is a 12-step recovery program that's also a trauma recovery program where we reparent ourselves. So the idea there is that when we grow up in dysfunction, it results in what's called relational trauma. So most people, when they think of trauma, they think of what we call big T trauma. So you were in a car accident, you were in a hurricane, you got raped, that sort of thing relational trauma is sometimes referred to as small t trauma. And that is, it's sort of like the continual drip, drip, drip of emotional invalidation. That was the case for me and gaslighting. So I grew up in a family where like feelings were not really a thing. Like it was like, you're not like, don't feel that, you know, and feelings are energy that is naturally created in our body. And what happens as little people 
is we learn to stuff that and it's like trapped in our body and it results in trauma. And a, a phrase that I learned in yoga for 12-step recovery is the issues are in our tissues. So many times people that are in recovery for trauma need to do some kind of somatic healing to release that energy from their bodies. But what happens in ACA is we both use the 12 steps of recovery and we reparent ourselves. And reparenting yourself can mean a wide variety of things. So it can mean as simply as I am now being good and kind to myself. And it can be as complex as you cultivate this entire cast of characters internally, an inner loving parent, an inner critical parent, an inner child, an inner teenager, maybe multiple inner children. And then those characters go about the process of reparenting you and giving you the things that you didn't get as a child. And it is astonishing to me the changes that can happen. And I will say that for the bulk of my time in recovery, I've mostly done the part where I'm just good and kind to myself. But in the last year and a half, and especially the last handful of months, I have really been actively working on reparenting myself and really working with this cast of characters and getting familiarized with this inner teenager. Like I was aware I had an inner child, but that was as far as it went. And I've done a lot of work to kind of flesh that out. And I am astonished at the level of healing I'm experiencing. I feel like my DNA is changing. I think that that is really, that reparenting is really important, but the 12 steps is also really important in ACA because, you know, the step that if most people have heard of recovery, the step that most people have heard about is step four, where we take a searching and fearless moral inventory of our lives. In most programs, what that means is you look at all the shitty things that you've been doing and you clean that up. You stop doing it. And if necessary, you make amends to the people and places that you've, you know, that you've done those things. And in ACA, we say we take a look at our environment and what happened to us. Like in in AA, for example, the mother program, you're not allowed to look at other people, your environment or what happened. You're only allowed to look at yourself and what you did because that's all you have control over. In ACA, we say, well, I'm a product of my, my environment. I must look at the family system we do a genogram of our family and say like, where was the alcoholism? Where was the codependence? You know, where was the cheating and the lying and the gambling and, and all that stuff. And we see that family dysfunction is intergenerational and it's passed down. And then in step four, we look at what happened to us, not just what we did. We sort of get at what we did by way of what happened to us. So I gave a perfect example earlier. What happened to me was I grew up in a family that engaged in indirect communication. And what I did was gossip. I I have to stop regardless of whether I know where it came from or not. But I feel personally really grateful that I learned about being a gossip in ACA rather than in my other recovery program, which I didn't mention. I'm also in Overeaters Anonymous, which is a 12-step recovery program for people that have problems with food. So I'm down over 100 pounds for my top weight. Next week actually is my eight-year anniversary in ACA and my seven-year anniversary of being what we call abstinent in um, Overeaters Anonymous. And I've been at my goal weight for over five years. And so I think if I had learned that I was a gossip when I did the 12 steps in OA, I would have been completely riddled with guilt and shame, like, oh my God, I'm a horrible person. But because I learned it 
in ACA, I learned this came from somewhere that takes the sting away of like, I'm not a crappy person. I'm a product of my environment. I still have to change it. But, you know, that's the gist of that. I would say, I think I've heard there's something like over 200 12-step programs, but like the one that is the most prolific is Alcoholics Anonymous. There's also Narcotics Anonymous, Al-Anon, Quota, Overeaters Anonymous, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. Um, there are several ones for eating in addition to Overeaters Anonymous. There's um, an Internet and Technology Addicts Anonymous, which is relatively new. There's Debtors Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, you know, a whole bunch more. So I think you know, if you feel like you have an addiction, a compulsion, or an obsession, just Google that in 12-step recovery. And, you know, maybe there's a fellowship for you. And now that we're post-pandemic world where everybody meets on Zoom, even if there's not a meeting in your physical geographical area, you can hop on a Zoom call with people who are just like you and find out not only are you not alone, but there's a solution and a recovery program. There's other people just like you. Like I remember my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting, I went with a friend and I thought I was going to a regular weekly OA support meeting, but it was a workshop. And the first speaker said, I'm down over 185 pounds for over 30 years. And I was like, I'm listening because I'd never heard anything like that. And then he proceeded to do a presentation on the cycle of addiction as it applies to food. And I went, oh my God, I'm a compulsive overeater. I didn't even know that was a thing, never mind that I was it. And then when I started being in the room with people and hearing like the way that they think about and behave with food and the games they play in their heads about food, like I do that. I had no idea that I wasn't alone. And to hear people talking out loud about things that I would never have told other people and then we laugh about it. It's just incredible. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing all that and and being so transparent in it because I think now what you're doing is you're talking about the things that you've struggled with and passing it down to people. And, mm-hmm. and I think that that's amazing. And, and that's, um, that's really awesome. I definitely uh, really appreciate that about you. And we are kind of coming to the end of our time here. Um, and I feel like you've given us a, a almost a free boundaries lesson here. Um, but what can people do if they really resonated with what you spoke with and, and want to work with you? Okay. So my favorite place on social media hangout is on Instagram. So I'm at Higher Power Coaching. Of course, I would love it if you would listen to my podcast. So whatever app you're listening to this podcast in, you look up Fragmented to Whole or if you want to find it online, go to fragmentedtowhole.com. I have right now 27 episodes specifically about boundaries. And there's a page on my website that has a playlist of just those episodes. So if you go to my website and it says my issue is, and then you go to boundaries, that will take you to the page where I also have a whole bunch of free resources on boundaries, including that playlist. I have a 12-week private coaching program for people who really want to like get shit done and get over this boundaries thing. So you can also find that on my website, which is higherpowercc.com. I'm probably going to be launching a group, not probably, I'm going to be launching a group coaching program in the next couple of months. Something like it's going to be called something like build boundaries accelerator program or something like that. I'm not exactly sure of the name, but it's going to be an eight week program. 
And that is for people who either just don't want to pay the kind of money that I charge for private coaching and or really prefer to work in a group setting. But they don't they don't get any one-on-one time with me, but they get lots of support and lots of you know curriculum and materials and feedback and stuff. Awesome. Awesome. I will link all that stuff in the show notes so people can find it. And thank you again for your time here. And I also do want to say that the whole reason that we even connected, I'm, I'm not sure if you remember or not, but I was working at Known Coworking kind of by myself and I was not really participating in uh, any of the things that Known had to offer. And you basically like pulled me aside one day and said like, hey, what are you, what are you doing in an hour? We have a networking. And you, you know, told me to go to that networking. And then ever since then, I've met tons of amazing people and um, I'm very appreciative of it. So I'm glad that you did that. That's my job. Can't help it. I mean, I can't stop myself. It's my job, but also <laughs> it's my nature. So so thank you so much for everything and, and all your wisdom today. Yes, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in and listening to Working Towards Our Purpose. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend and don't forget to subscribe for more episodes.